0: Well, Merry Christmas. If, uh, if you did not know, we are three days away, uh, and it, it feels like it everywhere we go. Uh, even downtown campus. I was trying to park in downtown campus the other day and I had to do like multiple loops around the blocks. I'm like, What's happening here? Um, but it, it's, it, it is exciting. You, you can feel it everywhere you go. I don't know if your house is like uh, my house, but it's full Christmas mode for sure. Um, even my, my four year old, she's been, uh, she got into wrapping gifts this year, uh, which is fun. Uh, the really fun thing is she's wrapping things that aren't gifts as well. Um, <laughs> So like yesterday, she wrapped the scissors twice as we're trying to wrap gifts. And I saw that there's uh, what appears to be a cup under the tree that's been wrapped. So hopefully there was nothing in that cup before she wrapped it, but we got a couple days. We'll find out. Uh, well, I, I want to, uh, I want to invite you if you have your Bible so you can turn to Matthew chapter two, but before we get there, uh, I would like to tell a, a cautionary tale that will appear to have nothing at all to do with Christmas. I guarantee no other pastor is talking about this, uh, to open up their sermon today. Um, I'm a huge Blazer fan, Trail Blazers. Uh, it's not a good year right now, but we came off a great year. Uh, back in April 2019, uh, game five of the playoffs against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, we're up. It, it, we we have three wins. We can clinch it at home. And uh, the game, it was a battle. The Blazers in the second half, I think they were down by as many as like 13 or 14, but they, they clawed their way back um, and, and and brought it to a tie, 115 to 115. Oklahoma City, they have the ball, they drive down, they, they shoot a good shot, like real close, bounces off the rim, Damian Lillard rebounds the ball. And then I, I wanna show you what happened here. So Alex is gonna run the video here. And Damian Lillard at this point has 47 points. With If you don't know basketball, that is phenomenal. 47 points, there's just enough time uh, left in the game that we can we can run it out, right? The, the shot clock's not even on. So our worst case scenario is uh, we put up a shot. And when I say we, I mean Dame puts up a shot. And if he misses, and, and hopefully he, he does it so late in the clock that the other team can't even score. So we just go to overtime. But this, this is what happens. So he's dribbling it out, right? Uh, Paul George is one of the best perimeter defenders in the league on him. Someone shot the ball as time expired to win the whole series, right? Not a championship, but a series. Nine times that's happened. Uh, A handful of those nine times, it's been a three-pointer. Dame has two of those now. Um, I was at that game. Uh, my, yeah, you, uh, you can clap for that. I'm excited. Uh, I was at the game, okay? I, 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 my friend took me be- way better seats than I would ever pay for in my life. Uh, I couldn't believe, like, you're so close, you could see all their tattoos. It was crazy. Um, so I'm at the game. And, and I had this strange belief the whole time that we were going to win. Even when we were down late, I just thought we're going to win this game. Dame is going to do something incredible because it just it felt that way. So Dame rebounds that ball, like I said, and there's I think maybe 14 seconds left. So like any, um, any person in 2019 with a cell phone, you want to get video of what happens, right? Like, this is going to be great, I'm thinking. So I whip out my phone, and the Blazers don't call a timeout, they're, they're just letting Dame do his thing. I whip out my phone, and, and my phone has the, uh, you know, the finger ID, so it can unlock with my thumbprint, right? So I do that. I have historically just sweaty hands, right? So it doesn't recognize my thumbprint. So I try it a couple times, it's not working. So I'm like, okay, other hand, punch in my code, that hand's too sweaty because I'm just so excited, right? So I'm doing all this. I'm trying to get this. I don't know how many times I tried. All of a sudden, my brain clicked on. I said, Greg, the game is going. And there's like 14 seconds left. I look up just in time to see the ball go through the net and the buzzer sound. Right? The place explodes, right? We're going crazy. Like I'm high-fiving people. I don't know. I'm cheering. My voice is already pretty far gone, but but in the next few minutes, it'll be totally gone. The place just erupted and nobody wanted to leave for like 20, 30 minutes. We're just chanting like Rip City and Let's Go Blazers. And it was it was awesome. And then my friend who took me to the game, who I'm indebted to, um, he he looks to me and he said, Did you see that? And that's when it hit me. I almost didn't, right? Like so dumb. I got my phone out because I wanted to like post it to Twitter that I'm on like once every four months. I don't have a Facebook. Like I don't know what I thought I was going to do with this video. And and I almost missed the shot. Technically, I did see the shot, but, but I missed everything, everything from the rebound Today I'm shooting it. I didn't get to see it leave his hand. So maybe you don't care at all about basketball. So let's take it to something else. Let's say, let's say it's your firstborn's uh, wedding. Okay, it's wedding day, and uh, you—I mean, you—you you love your kid. You want everything to just be right, all the details. So it, it's—you're nervous anyway about the wedding. You got this nervous energy. So you go and you're just kind of checking. Every little thing. And, and you get down to uh, the receptions in the same building, and you get down there, and you're looking over the decorations there and everything, and, and, and your kid, for whatever reason, they wanted that, that chocolate fountain, right? And It's it's cool. Um, they wanted the chocolate fountain. It was a big deal to them. So you, you realize, like, man, something's wrong with this thing. And you don't know anything about chocolate fountains, but but you, you're going to figure this out. And you're, you're messing around with it, and it's taking forever, and you completely lose track of time. You have no idea that it's already past time for the ceremony to start. Nobody can find you. They don't know where you are. You put your cell phone in the the dressing room so you don't even have that on you and and you you realize what time it is. You run upstairs and you almost missed. You almost missed their wedding. I think there's a danger at Christmas that we can get distracted by, by all the trimmings of Christmas. Lots of good, good things, but we miss what matters about Christmas. We miss that Christmas is all about the Christ, right? It's fine to love the Christmas lights, the decorations, buying the perfect gift for someone, receiving gifts, having people over, getting, getting some time off work, resting, all those are good things. I'd say that's God's grace in our lives, like getting to enjoy those things. But, but we can miss that Christmas is first and foremost about Jesus, right? That the focus of Christmas is really Christ. And yet when we make those other things our aim, we miss the target completely. So Matthew, he, uh, he, he doesn't really tell us much about the birth of Christ. Last week in Luke chapter two, we heard that, that the census was happening. So Mary and Joseph had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, right? And, and that it was so busy there that they couldn't even find uh, a room to rent. So, so she gives birth somewhere where there's probably animals because what ends up being his, his crib is this manger, this feeding trough, right? And we heard about the, the shepherds that come that night because the angel appeared to them and announced that, that this, this savior had been born. But Matthew, he really, he really just says he was born. And then we jump into Matthew chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, "'Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, "'saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? "'For we saw his star when it rose "'and have come to worship him. "'When Herod the king heard this, "'he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him.'" So as we read through Matthew's account here in chapter two, I want you to pay attention to the people that we hear about. We'll hear about the wise men. We hear about Herod. We'll briefly hear about the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes. And of course, we hear about Jesus. Uh, but Herod, he is, uh, he's interesting. He's the king of the Jewish people. He's been the king uh, for about 40 years by the time Jesus is born. Um, but the Jews do not like him even though there were some good things that he did for them, uh, they don't like him. He's, he's not one of them. He's only half Jewish, right? And they, they want their king to be one of them. It's supposed to be from the line of David. But Herod is from the line of Esau, right? Esau, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel, the Israelites. So he's, he's connected, but he's not, he's not fully one of them. Uh, the wise men. Uh, we often refer to them either as uh, magi or maybe we think of them as the kings because of the song, We Three Kings. Um, we, we don't know exactly who they were. We know uh, they, weren't, they weren't kings. Um, Magi, we don't know exactly. It's hard to tell exactly uh, who the Magi were originally. The Magi uh, were were a tribe of priests from Persia, but but later uh, other people were called Magi too. Some magicians were called Magi. Astrologers were called Magi. So we don't really know who they were, but we do know that they weren't Jewish. And and this is deliberate on Matthew's part. He wants his readers to see that from the very beginning of Jesus' life, that the worship of Jesus was for everyone, for anyone who would see that he is the king, who would recognize his kingship. And that's one of the questions for us today is do we worship Jesus as king? We all worship something. We were made to worship. We were made ultimately to worship Jesus. But we can worship any number of things or, or, or anyone else. So do we worship Jesus Israel's job, the the Jewish people, their role in the world as God's people was was to proclaim the excellencies of God. They they were supposed to be this conduit, this this bright shining light telling the world about God, the God who has the power to save. And God was making sure that this would happen of these men of this foreign land, that, that foreigners would know about the Christ. So we know they came from the East and how far they traveled um, is debatable. Some people say 400 miles, some people say up to 800 miles. So if they traveled 400 miles, that, that'd be like coming to Camus from about Boise, Idaho, right? Can you imagine making that that walk or maybe riding on a camel or, or something? That's a long ways. If it was 800 miles, that's that's a lot closer to like coming from, from Fresno. So uh, these men came a long, long ways to see this newborn king. They come to Herod and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now the star in the story is is very curious. There's all kinds of theories and questions. What, What was the star actually? How did it happen? And it's easy to get fixated on the star in the story because it is incredible. It's incredible, but it's not the focus of the account, right? We know this because the author doesn't give us any other details. What he wants us to see is that the star was to lead to Jesus. That's, that's the object of our affection. That's the one we are to treasure. But people... Um, in scripture get obsessed over things like the star or, or things like, how did God part the Red Sea? Or how did the whole manna thing uh, work out? How did that appear day after day after day? And, and these are important. They, they wouldn't be in the story if they weren't important, but, but they're not what God wants us to focus on. And it's the same thing with the star here. The star, it's like a road sign pointing to Jesus, The star was the sign to get the the wise man to Jesus. We do know it didn't behave like a normal star. After they left Herod, it says that the star rose and it rested over the place where Jesus was. It led them right to the house that Jesus was in. So some people speculate maybe this was a comet, like Halley's comet, or, or something about Jupiter and Saturn lining up, which I don't even understand that theory, uh, or maybe it's a supernova. There are all these different ideas. We don't know. We don't know what it was. We don't know how God did it. We do know that these men somehow connected the star to the birth of the Savior. And even that, how, how did they know this? How did God reveal that to them? Maybe, maybe they found the Hebrew scriptures from when the Israelites were, were exiled. Maybe some of the, the scriptures that Daniel had maybe it ended up in their hands is, is one idea. We don't know. But what is clear is they called it his star. They knew from God that this was his star. And they were convinced so much so that they left their homes. And they walked or they rode camels or somehow journeyed hundreds of miles to see this newborn king for themselves. They head to Jerusalem to get connect- and get connected with the current king and ask him, where can they find this baby, this born <laughs> king of the Jews? So who knows how Herod's day was going up to that point? Who knows what his plans were? Uh, but, but I guarantee this was a shock. So just pretend you're Herod for a moment, right? You're, you're going through your day and someone comes in and tells you that there are some men that have traveled an incredible distance. And they've come to see something about seeing the king of the Jews. And they've they brought these extravagant gifts and they want to worship him. So you can imagine being Herod and go, well, that wasn't in the plans, but that sounds pretty good. I wouldn't mind some gifts. I wouldn't mind some people worshiping me, only to find out that Herod's not the king of the Jews that they were talking about. These expensive gifts were not intended for him. The worship was not going to be of him. Essentially, they're just asking for directions. So Herod's troubled. But why? Why would he feel so threatened by a baby king? Right? It would it'd be years before this baby could functionally serve as the king. Verse four, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod connected the dots here. Right? He realized this isn't just an ordinary king. He, he asked where the Christ was to be born. And the, the Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means Messiah, the anointed one that God had promised to send as Savior. This was the special deliverer, the rescuer that Israel had been waiting and waiting and waiting for, for generations. The Christ was their hope. This is why Herod is so troubled. So he goes to the chief priests and the scribes and their Jewish religious leaders, and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The answer comes back to Herod, and, and they were confident of it, the chief priests and the scribes they knew. They got this from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And remember, these are religious Leaders, They knew, they knew that the hope of Israel was the Christ. They had no problem identifying where the Christ would be born, but it's as if all they cared about was giving Herod the answer as to where the Christ would be born and and didn't even think about. They completely missed who the Christ was and what he would do. Listen to other bits that I've spliced together from Micah 5 here. Speaking of the Christ, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days, right? He's eternal. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. His reign wasn't just going to be over Israel. It was going to be everywhere. And he shall be their peace and he shall deliver us. You would think that if they continue to read on, that they too would want to go see and worship Jesus for themselves, but they missed it, right? Like me at the Blazer game, like they, they missed it. These religious leaders were right there. And it's tragic that they missed recognizing their opportunity to see Jesus right in their backyard. They were completely indifferent to Jesus. And I think indifference uh, really describes much of the attitude towards Jesus in our culture. I think a lot of people know about Jesus, and maybe they even acknowledge he was a good teacher. Maybe they'll say, Yeah, I know, Jesus loves me. Yes, I heard Jesus died for me. And maybe they'll pay him lip service, maybe not. But are you indifferent toward Jesus, the Messiah? Do you hear about him and treat him as if he really isn't that big of a deal in your life? Verse seven Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod's up to no good. He doesn't want to come worship Jesus. He wants to kill him. He, he sees this newborn baby king as a threat to his kingship. Herod's been the king for a long time. He likes calling the shots. He likes ruling over his little kingdom and he isn't ready to give that up to someone else. And my guess is as you listen to the story, you don't feel like you relate to Herod at all probably. Right? You aren't threatened by a little baby. You you certainly aren't so uptight and paranoid that you'd want Jesus dead. But here's how we're like Herod. Every one of us loves being in control. Right? We we like knowing that we rule our little kingdom. Even with the flaws that we see in ourselves, we don't trust anyone to rule more than we trust ourselves. At least if there's a poor decision made, then it's on us. we're, We're the ones at fault. So any threat to our ruling power like Herod's is taken seriously. We don't naturally give over the throne to anyone. By nature, what we do is we reject Christ as king, just like Herod. Verse nine. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The end of verse 10, it's a clunky sentence. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why does Matthew say it that way? What's he trying to tell us? Why didn't he just say they were really full of joy? He doesn't because it doesn't capture the amount of joy. He wants us to understand the sheer volume of joy that these men had when they saw the star that was going to lead them to Jesus so they could worship him. So he, he didn't even just write great joy. He threw exceedingly before that, but that wasn't enough. So he, he put rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like joy to the fourth power. That's how much joy there is in, in seeing, in knowing, in worshiping Jesus, to just fall down at his feet and give him everything because this is what we were created for. That's why they had so much joy. And Matthew wants us to understand the level of this joy, that this was not ordinary joy, that there is joy in coming to meet the Christ. There is joy in getting to worship Jesus. There's joy in giving him everything that you have, a joy that can only be described in a clunky sentence, like rejoice exceedingly with great joy because they saw the star that was going to lead them to the Christ. Do you have joy in knowing Jesus, in worshiping Jesus, in being with Jesus? Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down, and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they they walk into the house to see Jesus and they see Mary and, and they just they drop down. They they drop down to worship the Christ. They they ascribe to him the greatness that only he is worth. Right? They they, they exalt him and by comparison they, they lower themselves because that is right now as a reader you probably should have this reaction of Man, wait why are they worshipping a baby because right? we can we can imagine uh, walking into a room and seeing a you know full size adult as someone that has that maybe accomplished just incredible things. It, just their, their character, perhaps, their their whole persona is it's unbelievable who they are. We can imagine at least feeling like we should worship them. We'd never call it that. We can imagine that with an adult, but as a baby, we don't understand. Like, how can that happen with a baby? And what Matthew is doing is he's inviting us to consider who is Jesus? Is Jesus really this great? That that even as a baby, he would command worship. And what Matthew's told us is Jesus is the king. And not just a king among many kings, he's the king of kings, as scripture tells us. Even these gifts, they point to the kingship of Jesus. And I said this a couple weeks ago, we're not fans of kings. To us, kings, uh, are a really dumb way to operate as a society to govern. We like uh, democracy. C.S. Lewis uh, said this about democracy. He said, I'm a proponent of democracy because I believe in the fall of man, m- meaning uh, the fall of man when when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and, and that sin has infiltrated all of us and it's, it's broken us, it's damaged all of creation, it's ruined our relationship with God. So he says, I'm a proponent of democracy because I believe in the fall of man. I I think most people are for democracy for the opposite reason, he says. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from ideas of people like Rousseau who believed in democracy because they thought mankind was so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. Lewis says, the danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they are not true, which is so funny how he put that. Um, Maybe not to you. Uh, I (laughs) I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a sharing governing a hen roost, much less a nation. And then he says this, the real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellow's Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. I don't know if you caught that there, but, but he says there's no one good enough to rule us. Right? There's, there's no man good enough to rule us, but what if there were a king that was good? What if they're a king that, that just loved his people, a king that didn't use his people and his power to figure out how to get more for himself, more riches, but a king that was already wealthy beyond comprehension and out of that wealth, he just lavishly blesses his people. What if they're a king that had real power? And he used that power to protect his people, to make sure that his people always remained with him, the power to make every wrong into a right, the power to take even our pain and use it for good. What if they're a king that possessed all wisdom? What if they're a king without weakness? And what if this king came and he came in the most humble way imaginable as a baby? He came that way, because we needed our King to come to us, because we couldn't find our way to Him. And even if we could, we couldn't make our way to Him. So He came and He lived like us. And one great reason to celebrate that is because our King understands us better than we realize. He's lived life just like us. He sympathizes with our weakness. He gets us. There's nothing about you that He doesn't understand. Another reason it's great that He came and lived in the flesh is because He alone can represent us to God, to mediate between God and man, and we needed him to. Our relationship with God was shattered by sin. The Bible tells us that we're, we're dead in our sins, right? There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Our sin deserves death. Our sin deserves punishment. So we face this spiritual death, this eternal death. That's our fate. But Jesus came to represent us He came and lived a sinless life that didn't deserve death so that he could die in our place, so that he could be our substitute. He sacrificed himself to pay our debt out of his riches, the debt that we incurred through sin. He died the death of a criminal, even though he'd never done anything wrong. This was injustice that Jesus, the unblemished lamb, sacrificed himself for people blemished beyond recognition. But we know the good news is he didn't just die. After three days, he rose from the dead. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And now what he offers is life for anyone that would put their trust in him, for anyone that would put their faith in him, that would die with him to sin and and turn to him as their king. We like democracy because there's no king on earth worthy of giving ourselves to. But when you find that king, you cannot wait for him to be your master you're willing to give up everything. You'll go wherever you need to go to know him and to pour out yourself as an offering to him. I know I read this verse last week, but I just, I've just been sitting in it for the last couple of weeks. Second Corinthians 1 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, right? That's a great description of Jesus Jesus greatness right that, that every promise of God is wrapped up in Jesus the Christ another verse for you Romans 11:36 for from him And through him and to him are all things. He's the cause. He's the reason for everything. It all exists for him. So the only response that makes sense is how that verse ends to him. Be the glory forever. Amen. He's the king that we didn't know we needed. He's the king that we didn't think could even exist. Herod thought that he knew what was best for him, right? He lives out the modern saying, you do you. Right? He, he loved being on the throne. He thought that he knew how to be the king of his life better than anyone. And you catch the arrogance that, that Herod has as, as you read the account. Right? Imagine saying something like, I know what's best for me, better than God does. And maybe you wouldn't say that out loud. Maybe you haven't even thought that thought. But functionally, that's how we live by nature. We're so fixated on what we think is good that we miss what is best. And what Herod did get right was there's only room for one ruler. It it was either going to be him or Jesus. It's either you trying to be ruler or you trusting in Jesus as the ruler who's worthy of all worship. The scribes and Pharisees, um, and their response scares me. They're their non-response, I guess. They don't worship. They don't want him dead yet. That'll come later in Jesus' life. But if any of these three groups should have, should have recognized Jesus, should have responded right to Jesus, it, it was them. They knew about the Messiah. They knew the right answers, right? Their, their head was full of the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Old Testament Today, there are plenty of people that are convinced they have their spirituality nailed down. Whether they're religious or call themselves non-religious, they claim to have it all figured out, but they completely miss Jesus. But the wise men, they didn't miss him. They didn't miss the significance of Jesus' birth. They heard the Messiah had been born, and they did everything to go see him, to worship him. They show us how to respond to Jesus. They proclaim his authority. They rightly acknowledge that he is the king. They fall down and they worship him. They exalt him and make themselves lower. And, and they give him these gifts, right? They, they demonstrate that, that, that he's their treasure, Right? They they gave him their best. They, not like a Christmas gift when you're trying to think, like, oh, how much do I have to spend here? No, they gave everything. They gave it to him. And, and they showed that, that it's it's not stuff that matters. Things weren't gonna make their life better. Even really expensive things weren't gonna do anything for them. He was their treasure. So how do you respond to Jesus today? Maybe, maybe coming up to Christmas, you've been distracted by all the trimmings, right? You've been, you've been sweating out your list of gifts that you need to buy, or you've been stressing about how things are going to be with your family instead of focusing on Jesus. And, and right now, today, Jesus is inviting you to lay everything at his feet, to see him and to worship him. Let's pray. Jesus. We thank you that that you were born, that you came unto us, that you were born so that we can know you, so that we can be forgiven of our sin if we'd place our trust in you. And Jesus, I pray for our hearts, Lord, that you would reveal to us where we're worshiping other things, other gods, other people. Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us to see you for who you are. And that not just Christmas Day, but for our lives, that we would worship you, that we would exalt you, and and that we would be ready. We'd be ready to go wherever you, you want us to go to tell this world about you, Jesus. Lord, we love you. It is in your holy name that we pray. Amen.